Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Amarita Myers, who is a historian of Black of the Black female experience in the United States, and her research interests revolve around issues of race, gender, freedom, and power, and the ways in which these constructs intersect with one another in the lives of Black women in the Old South. She currently is the Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of History at Indiana University. She is also the Ruth N. Hall's Associate Professor in the Department of History and Gender Studies, and she's also affiliated with the Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies, as well as the Department of American Studies. Her first book, Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston, examined the lives of free Black women, both legal and de facto, in Charleston, South Carolina from 1790 to 1860. This book won many awards, including the Phyllis Wheatley Book Prize for the Best Monograph in Black Studies. She also won the Julia Spreehill Book Award for the Best monograph in Southern Women's History, as well as the Anna Julia Cooper, C.R.L.R. James Book Award for Best Monograph in Africana Studies, and the George C. Rogers Book Award for the Best Monograph on South Carolina History. Today, we will be discussing her second book, The Vice President's Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chen, which I am sure will win just as many awards. Professor Myers, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Katrina. I'm really happy to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? <laughs> Where would you like me to begin? <laughs> Just a little synopsis for us. Mm, no, of course. Um, well, so the title of the book is The Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chin. And it is about an enslaved woman named Julia Chin who lived in Kentucky from the late 1700s to 1833. And she was for almost a quarter of a century um, in a sexual relationship with a man named Richard Mentor Johnson. And Richard was a career politician. He was a congressman, a senator, and then a one-term vice president of the United States. He was the ninth vice president of the United States under Martin Van Buren from 1836 to 1841. So this is why the book is titled The Vice President's Black Wife. Now, Um, why did you select her as your topic? (laughs) Well, nobody has actually written about Julia Chin. And what I mean by that is there's been no full-length, historically researched, archivally-driven monograph written about Julia. 
or her daughters or their life. There have been a lot of um, internet-based um, pieces. There have been shorter article pieces, but there's been no full-length study done on Julia or her daughters, certainly not archivally based. In fact, the last monograph or biography that was done on Richard was published in 1932. And so when I came across mention of Julia, this was well over a decade ago. It was in a survey textbook on U.S. history because I was preparing to teach the first part of the U.S. history survey to students here at IU. It was really a a very small throwaway mention of uh, Richard and his, um, you know, unusual sex life, basically, and his relationships with Black women. And kind of caught me off guard because I thought, well, you know, I'm a scholar of Black women's history, of enslaved women of the 19th century, and I had never heard of Richard Johnson. I had never heard of his, you know, you know, many, they, they were talking, the book was talking about his his farm and his uh, his many concubines and mistresses, et cetera, and how abolitionists used him as an example of why slavery needed to be abolished, basically. I thought, I've never heard of this man. This is, you know, I need to come back to this at some point. I was in the midst of, I was very close to finishing Forging Freedom, my first book. And so when I did come back um, and get a chance to sort of look Julia up and look Richard up, that's when I discovered that there had been very little work done um, on Richard or on Julia. And it was mostly really this sort of voyeuristic kind of work that had been done. Um, you know, the, the vice president and his quote unquote mulatto mistress, you know, that sort of thing. And I, you know, what had been done was um, the little historical work that had been done was pretty old. It was, um, you know, so it was very dated. It was, it was about Richard. It was about, him as a politician and a vice president. And, and I was I was struck by that. And I really thought this is a, I was having conversation actually with my then colleague, Christina Snyder, who had just started work on Choctaw Academy, which is a federally funded indigenous boarding school that was actually on Blue Spring Farm, uh, Richard and Julia's um, plantation in Kentucky. And we were having a conversation about Richard and about Julia and about the boarding school. And I just, I said to her, I said, you know, this is, I can't believe nobody has done any work on, on Julia and on their daughters. Um, because, you know, she said, well, it's really a lot more complicated than, than people have ever written about, you know, yes, he has um, multiple relationships, but he's with Julia for the longest and, they have two daughters. They live together. Um, he doesn't appear to be with anyone else when he's with her. Um, he doesn't have a white wife. Never marries a white woman. Uh, he, you know, it's a really it's a complicated story. And I said, well, someone needs to write about this. <laughs> someone needs to write about her and about the family. This is really important. And um, you know, she kind of looked at me and and said, well, isn't that kind of what you do? <laughs> Isn't that kind of the work you do? And she was half laughing, but half serious. And 
And I thought, you know, she's right. But um, so I kind of jumped, you know, I sort of went down the rabbit hole when I started doing this research. And uh, but that's really, really how I kind of came across it is um, looking in this, you know, sort of stumbled across it in this survey textbook. And then the more I researched, the more I realized that the that there was just not very much out there um, on her. Let's talk about what were some of the challenges you faced in writing about Julia Chen and just in general, Black women's history, how difficult that can be? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when I started this project, I thought that it would be easier than my first book in some ways because I thought, well, Richard Johnson was a career politician. There's probably going to be a massive archive. You know, he was in the public eye for well over 40 years. I'm sure there's going to be a huge vice presidential library. I'm sure there's going to be boxes and boxes and boxes of materials in the, you know, at the Library of Congress, the National Archives, you know, in Kentucky, where he's from. And even though I'm not in the slightest bit interested in doing a book on Richard, you know, I understood that in order to get to Julia, I would have to go through Richard, um, that I would have to use his records um, to find her um, and their daughters. This is kind of standard <laughs> how to research enslaved Black women <laughs> 101, um, right? I, I, I sort of, I understood that, but I was really, I was devastated. Um, I was shocked, devastated when I started doing the research to discover that there was no enormous, uh, there was no any Richard Mentor Johnson collection. Here was a man who had served in some political office or capacity for 44 years of his life, and yet there was no large collection of his records in Washington, D.C. or in Kentucky. And I was I was just sort of rattled by that. And and Julia Chin was was a literate woman. She knew how to read and write. So and her daughters, Imogene Johnson Pence and Adeline Johnson Scott were also literate women. They were well educated. They also knew how to read and write. And since Richard lived in Washington for six months of every year because he was a career politician, the, the women wrote letters to, you know, husband and father, um, back and forth, back and forth. So there should be, there, there should have been a massive collection of not only political materials and business correspondence, but there should have been letters back and forth, right, between Richard and his wife and his daughters, and yet there was nothing and I was I was just shocked and I was devastated. And I was also once again, you know, tearing my hair out like I had been in some ways with my first book um, on the free black women of Charleston, South Carolina, because I thought to myself, here we go again. <laughs> um, I mean, I had the training to do this. It meant that I had to go to public documents, right? I'm a social historian by training. And so, and that's what I did. I looked at estate records. I looked at census materials. I looked at tax records. 
I looked at newspapers. I looked at church registers and you know parish materials. I looked at the papers and letters and records of other people that Richard was in conversation with, like Thomas Henderson, the headmaster of Choctaw Academy, the indigenous boarding school on his property that I mentioned earlier, right? But I mean, it was painstaking to piece together um, all of these records, right? Thomas Henderson's papers, the Choctaw um, Academy records, the Great Crossing Baptist Church um, registers, the newspapers, both from Kentucky and um, across the nation, um, as well as census, will, et cetera. Had I had Julia's uh, letters, the letters of her daughters, um, the papers of the family, um, it would have made the book come together much more quickly and easily. And it would have just, it, it would have made such a difference to be able to um, get into the thoughts and feelings of these of these black women, um, which is what I I so desperately wanted. Um, and I'm I'm almost I'm very very certain that what happened because we know that these records existed at some point. Um, but I'm I'm very certain at this point, having spent a dozen years of my life working on this book, that Richards. Um, brothers, his white brothers, um, when he died, his two remaining brothers, um, they came in and had Richard declared dead, but also intestate that he died without a will. Um, and, and they went to probate court to do this. And they also said that he died without any children um, or spouse living. Now, Julia did predecease him, but Richard had, um, his older daughter, Imogene, was alive and well, and she had many children and grandchildren. Um, and so this was a bald-faced lie, but they, um, in cahoots with the local probate judge, um, had, you know, basically said, you know, we are his only living descendants, and they they took everything that was left. Um, and I, I strongly suspect that what they did is they destroyed their brother's papers, because not only did that um, give them the edge in making sure that they were declared his inheritors, um, they were embarrassed by their brother's um, unconventional life and unconventional wife, as I like to put it. And so it made my job 100 times more difficult in terms of reconstructing Julia and her daughter's lives. And it, and it made it it made putting the book together take that much longer. But this is the kind of difficulty that we face as Black women's historians of the, the, past, the distant past. When we work on enslaved women or free Black women from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, when we're working on women who were usually not literate, although Julia and Imogene and Adeline were, when we have to go through um, white men, when we have to go through the settler colonial archive, we are, um, it, it's, it's really difficult, right? We are looking at scraps, we are looking at fragments, we are putting together a jigsaw puzzle, a 500 or a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle with only 50 pieces. 
And, um, and so it's what I, what I really learned over the process of doing this particular book is that I couldn't just limit myself to the settler colonial archive, that I couldn't just limit myself to white men's records, um, to the written word, that if I wanted to really do a better job of getting to the heart of Julia's life, that I was going to have to go outside of the you know, the Western European archive, um, that I was going to have to go to the land where she lived, that I was going to have to go to the buildings where she slept um, and worked, the church where she worshipped. I was going to have to look at gravestones. I was going to have to um, talk to descendants and do oral histories. I was going to have to think about, really seriously think about geography and material culture, that I was going to have to do the kind of work that, you know, people who are anthropologists and archaeologists and geographers have been doing for a long time, but historians have been slow to catch on, unwilling in many ways to catch, you know, to do this work because the discipline of history has been so wedded to the written word um, and has been unwilling um, to embrace anything outside of it. But Black women's historians um, have been mining um, the silences right? Reading a, reading the silence, interrogating it. And as Marisa Fuentes, Jennifer Morgan, and others have, uh, Taya Miles, have been saying for a long time, right? Going against this, reading against the bias grain and um, interrogating the archive, archive itself, understanding that the archive is actually a violent space and that it was never meant to hold the stories of Black women, of Indigenous people, of enslaved persons. And so it's it's been difficult to reconstruct this book, um, in some ways even more difficult than it was to construct my first book because I was looking solely at one woman, one family. But um, I was you know, very fortunate that I was able to interview descendants that I was able to look to the newspapers um, and and other written sources, um, but I also, you know, had come a long way from my first book, um, where I didn't trust, you know, where I had just come out of graduate school and was really focused on just the written archive, and where I gave myself permission with this book to look to a much broader range of source materials in order to recreate um, the lives of of black women whose voices otherwise you know would would be far far more faint if we simply um, narrow you know, sort of narrowly defined source to the written word and you did it so masterfully in this book that you know you really, I was able to really get a sense of who Julia Chen was. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, she was a, grew up in Kentucky and, you know, but the how and when of her and her relationship beginning with Richard, that's so hard to figure out. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, Julia and Richard's quote unquote relationship and the broader issue of how, 
these relationships between black between excuse me black women and white men were so complicated um especially during that time they're definitely complicated on on so many levels i mean and that, that's something that I hope I never lose sight of um, throughout the book. I don't ever want readers to, you know, at any point in this book, think that I'm suggesting that this was, a, you know, a, a story that was, um, you know, a romance, right? That this is some sort of, you know, romance novel or... Um, you know, simple sort of love story or something of that sort. Because, you know, in years past, there have been people who have suggested that, you know, that Richard loved Julia, that this was, you know, a different kind of relationship from the one that Thomas Jefferson had with Sally Hemings. And I'm, I've been very clear from the very beginning, when I started to research this book, that we don't know how Julia felt about Richard. We may never know how she felt about Richard because we don't have her words. We can analyze her actions to a large extent, which is what I've tried to do. We also don't really know how Richard actually felt about Julia. We in terms of his emotionality. There are letters in which he writes very clearly about how he felt about his daughters with Julia. And it's clear that he that he really loved his daughters. Um, and there's one letter in particular where he is grief stricken when he writes about the death of one of their daughters um, and how how deeply it affected him as a father and how much he how much he loved and respected his daughter but he never talks that openly in terms of his emotionality about his feelings for Julia he talks about his admiration i mean how he it's clear that he admires and respects her abilities to run the plantation right her head for business and numbers and contracts he trusts her to a very large extent. But I do not write about this as a love story. It is not in any way, shape, or form a simple story. It's extremely complicated and complex. You know, one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind is that there's an enormous age gap between the couple, right? Julia when she comes to Blue Spring Farm, right, she's owned in the beginning by Richard's parents, right? Julia, her mother, and her brother, Daniel, are all owned by Robert and Jemima Johnson, who are Richard's parents. And then around 1810, Robert and Jemima um, give gift somewhere in the neighborhood of about a hundred laborers to Richard when he builds Blue Spring, right? Comes into Blue Spring property and builds him builds his own home. And 
at that, in 1810, Richard is 30 years old. In 1810, as far as we can ascertain, Julia is about 13 or 14. And within a year of coming to Blue Spring Farm, she's pregnant with their first child and has Imogene. She's, she becomes his housekeeper with, within months of arrival and then is pregnant and then has their first daughter. So the age gap is, is about 14 to 31 if we want it, or, you know, so it's, it's about 16 or 17 years. Now, it's not uncommon in the antebellum period for men and women to have large age gaps, even amongst white couples, especially in the, in the old South. It was very common. Women were prized for their fertility, for their ability to um, have children, Men were prized for um, their financial stability. And so women were married, marriages were arranged by families. They were not about love. They were about, they were political and financial alliances. Um, so parents arranged these to, you know, make their families more powerful. So what happened, and it was, you know, is that mom and dads got together and they put together very young girls who had long years of fertility and pregnancy and um, reproduction ahead of, you know, ahead of them with men who had already established themselves financially, who had land and slaves um, who could provide for their daughters. So it was not unheard of for 15, 16 year old girls to be married off to men in their thirties. But this, you know, has the added burden of right? Race and slavery, right? Julia is 14. Um, Richard is 30 or 31. But Richard is white. She's, Julia is black. Richard is, a, is, a, is an enslaver. Julia is his property by law. She doesn't have the right to say no. She doesn't have the right to say, I would rather be with this other person she doesn't have the right to walk away and he never frees her. Kentucky law is set up so that owner manumission is a possibility, unlike other states like South Carolina, where owners have to petition the state legislature. That's not the case, actually, in Kentucky um, during Julia's lifetime. Richard could have set her free. He makes pathways out of slavery for both their daughters Right. Um, they are able, to, you know, they are never treated as enslaved persons. They are educated. They are given land. They are given laborers. They are given cash and they are married um, when they come of age. Um, they are both, um, you know, he arranges marriages for them to local white men. So they are he creates pathways to freedom for both of their daughters. But there is no pathway to freedom for um, the woman that he refers to as his wife. So. This is an incredibly complex relationship because Julia Chin has a lot of privilege. She uh, runs the household. She has power and authority over the domestic staff. She has access to bank accounts and lines of credit. She signs contracts. She does business with local vendors. 
Um, she runs the 2000 acre plantation when Richard is away in Washington, DC. She, you know, administers discipline over the enslaved laborers when he is away, right? She, she's a, you know, she hosts massive soirees for people like the Marquis de Lafayette and former presidents come through their home. Everyone knows that she is his wife. Um, they're, you know, their their daughters play the piano for the Marquis de Lafayette when he comes to visit. She's not hidden in the quarters. They live together. There's not a white wife on the premises. She's not, it's not a case of a white family in the big home and Julia and their daughters in the quarters. This is his, is, is Johnson's only family. Um, everyone in Washington, D.C. knows about this. But it's a very, very complex situation because despite all of the privileges and despite all of the power that Julia appear, appears to have, he never Johnson never takes the final step of freeing her. And why is that? Well, if he if this was a romantically based love relationship, if this was if this was a companionate marriage, which was coming into being, you know, in the 19th century, why not free the woman that you refer to as your bride, your wife, your, you know, all of these things? Um, I, I, I really do believe that Johnson wanted to maintain that that power and that control over her. And perhaps deep down, he feared that if he set her free, that she would leave him. Um, and that, to me, that speaks volumes that he never did free her, that she died enslaved. Um, and we see that in the church parish registers um, that when she passes from cholera, that she is um, referred to as um, as an enslaved woman for the property of Richard Johnson. And so the complexity of this relationship has numerous layers. Uh, excuse me, that it does. Just, you know, as your mind conceptualize that yes she has you know authority she has access to money but still she's still an enslaved member she's still his property on so many levels and as you say he did not take that step to say okay you have your freedom but I was thinking along the same lines as you maybe there was a fear there that if she did give her her freedom maybe she would leave possibly um and he really was unsure of what she would do with that because he you know his daughters Imogene and Adeline he made sure that they had the pathway to freedom but mm -hmm. never for Julia it was just no and it's a very very complex relationship so you're correct to say this is by no means you know a romantic endeavor as most like to try to put a spin on it and as previous works you say have done it's a very complex relationship that developed between them and so I wanted to ask you how was how did the larger community see Julia and her daughters was their acceptance you know were they um treated well or were they kind of was there a distance I think that's really a an excellent question it, it goes to the heart of the book in so many ways because I'm I'm really I was really wanting to see where were those lines of power and privilege drawn um 
in the local community as well as nationally, um, how far could Julia, Imogene, and Adeline go, um, and where did the where did the community gather together and say, um, "Past here, you shall not go." <laughs> <laughs> and and what I really what I really came to discover, and what the book really talks about, is the fact that there's what I call sort of circles of power and privilege, I suppose, and that's. You know, people were perfectly happy to come to Blue Spring Farm to these amazing parties that um, the Johnsons threw. Um, they would eat the food, they would drink the wine, they would mingle with the VIPs that that came through. You know, the the Madisons, the Monroes, the the Marquis, the Marquis de Lafayette's. Um, they would um, do business with Julia when Richard was away. They would, um, they you know, they worshipped with Julia and her daughters at Great Crossing Baptist Church, which was just two miles down the road, and that was the church that Ju that Richard's parents had actually helped to found. Um, so there were these. On the surface, it appeared that there was great acceptance, right? Um, the the daughters were educated by Thomas Henderson, who was the headmaster of Choctaw Academy. Um, he and his wife um, and family lived on Blue Spring property. They had a home um, on, on the farm that came with the position of headmaster. Julia worked very closely with Thomas um, since this was a boarding school. Um, even though, you know, Thomas was in charge of the school, Julia and the domestic staff of Blue Spring helped with the practical matters of keeping the school up and running. So she and Thomas together worked very closely to make sure that the students were fed, that they were clothed, that uh, their rooms were cleaned. Um, also, you know, the dining hall was, you know, maintained. So, you know, Julia was helped to oversee all of those kinds of things. So, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of acceptance um, from the local community in terms of, you know, seats at church, you know, coming to the parties, you know, Thomas working with Julia at Choctaw Academy, all of these kinds of things. But then when I began to dig a little bit deeper, particularly into the newspaper records, it became evident that the line was really drawn when Julia and her daughters attempted to go into spaces where spaces that were really reserved for white women alone. For example, Julia's younger daughter, Adeline, um, tried to go to a 4th of July barbecue in town with her father. So Richard takes Adeline with him to this 4th of July party um, because he's been invited to be a speaker. Um, that day for the festivities. And when he arrives, um, you know, he goes one way um, to the podium to sit with the other speakers and his daughter goes another way to sit underneath um, a tent with the other ladies. Um, and there's dancing and music and food that's happening. And when she arrives and takes her seat, um, like it's like a catastrophe, like, you know, like not to be, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, kind of all hell breaks loose. The music stops, people are offended, pe people get up um, and sort of run away. There's consternation. 
people go to the organizers of the of the event and say, what is she doing here? She's sitting with the other women. Who does she think she is? I mean, because she dared to sit down under the tent with the other white women of the town. And the organizers went over to Richard and said, uh, you, you got to get rid of her. She can't stay here. So, and he was like, what are you talking about? She is as educated and, you know, refined as any other lady here. And they said, we don't care. It doesn't matter. She's got to go. Because because she's a Black woman and she's enslaved and her mother's a slave. That's what it boils down to. It doesn't matter. Like, what happens at Blue Spring Farm is one thing. But she, but his daughters, his wife cannot come into the community and, you know, what they do at church is even another thing. The church makes exceptions for them. Like it's a in-between space, right? It's, it's a, it's the house of God, but his family cannot come into town. Those women cannot come into town and act like they're like white women. They can't sit down on the same level as white women at a town dance. They cannot the newspapers write about the fact that Julia has the nerve to ride around the community in a carriage. And that just like makes people crazy because carriages are for white women. Who does she think she is riding around town in a carriage? Like she's the equal of a white woman. So there's a lot of discomfiture right? Like people are very upset if Johnson and his family had just stuck to their plantation and had stuck to Great Crossing Baptist Church, that would have been fine. But they step off the plantation and outside the church and they try to behave as if they're the equals of white women in the community, they had the nerve to drive around in carriages. Richard brought Adeline to that barbecue, that town barbecue on the 4th of July in his carriage. They had the nerve to ride around in, in carriages. They have the nerve to come to town dances and sit down amongst other white folks as if they're the equal of white women. And, and it just completely rocks the whole society to its foundation. And they push back and they push back hard because they're like, no, you will not. But it that's nothing compared to what will happen when these two girls marry white men. I mean, wow. you, could, you, could, <laughs> you think trying to go to a town dance is problematic. What do you think they're going to do when these two girls grow up, hit 18, and marry white men? They marry white men. They inherit the hundreds of acres of prime real estate from their father, along with enslaved laborers, and they become landed gentry and, and the and and people just go ballistic because now they're not now they're not now they are slaveholders and and they're gentry they are ladies there's a difference between being a woman and being a lady and these women have just said to the whole world we're ladies doesn't matter that our that our mother is is a enslaved black woman we're educated we're wealthy land holding slave holding gentry we're we're ladies and what are you going to do about it and they had they had church weddings they were married by they were married by ministers from great crossing baptist church i can only imagine how that went down i mean that was probably you know within that community so as i am thinking about it conceptualized what you're saying it's the marker in the sand 
that was drawn was when Julia and her daughters entered those spaces that were normally reserved for white women alone. Yes, that's exactly that. That's really what it's about. It's about this public private divide, like do what you wish in your own home and keep it to yourself, but do not try to come into these public spaces and try to like, you know, try to behave and, and take roles and positions that are reserved for white wives, white mothers, white daughters, white sisters, white women. That's absolutely not going to be tolerated because we must demarcate the the line. We must keep these spaces sacred and safe for, for white womanhood. Wow. And that, you know, it's so mind boggling, but yet, you know, for Mama Jean and Adeline, they're able to push past that, you know, and that kind of leads me to the next question. How did both of them, you know, use the social constructions of race in different geographic locales in terms of like passing during this period to in some ways make things easier for them, especially in their descendants? Well, I mean, in in Scott County, everyone knows who these do- who these girls are, right? Everyone knows who their mother is. Everyone knows where they come from. Um, Adeline, you know, will pass away quite young, just a few years after her mother. Uh, Julia passes away in 1833 in a cholera epidemic. Um, Adeline passes away during Richard's vice presidential run in 35, um, 35, 36, as he's, as he's running for the vice presidency. And, um, but she passes away. She's married by, you know, by that point, she's had one son with her husband and they, so her husband, Thomas and her son continue to live in Scott County until, until Richard dies in 1850. And then in 1851, um, Adeline's husband, who has by that point remarried, um, and he's remarried a, a white woman. He and his new wife, Catherine, um, will pull up stakes and they will take their whole family, including um, Thomas's son with Adeline. Uh, they will they will move and and they will move to Illinois. And then, you know, we we sort of, I mean, he 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 and Catherine will have many children together, but that that one son, that he has with Adeline goes with them. And the last chapter of the book traces the descendants of the family that traces um, Adeline and Imogene's children and grandchildren. And, you know, it's, you know, I often wonder like why Adeline's son doesn't stay in Scott County. He's grown by that point. He could have stayed. He has an inheritance. He has land um, that, has comes to him from his mother from his from through his grandparents from his through his mother um but i you know i wonder i suspect very strongly that you know everyone knows who he is everyone knows who his mother was who his grandfather uh, who his grandmother was and that really the only way for him to get a clean break and a fresh start is to move and not just to move to illinois because even in illinois 
everyone knows that the rest of his siblings are are white, that they are his father and new wife's children, but that he is the only one that isn't like fully white, white. And he pulls up stakes again from Illinois and ends up in Missouri. Um, and he, and he passes, um, and he passes. And, he, and I talk about that in, in the last chapter of the book. What's, but, and he's, you know, he, so he pulls up stakes from Kentucky to Illinois and then from Illinois to Missouri, he, he becomes a doctor. Um, and he's able to do that because there's no one who knows who he is. <laughs> there's no one who knows his connections to Kentucky, to, to, to Adeline, to Julia, to Richard. No one knows who he is. Um, there's even some like sort of name changing that goes on, like, you know, he drops, drops, he kind of goes by initials and, and all that kind of stuff. But what's what's more intriguing is the branch of the family that stays in Scott County. You know, this is not Louisville. This is not Lexington. It's certainly not Charleston or New Orleans. This is not a major urban area. Even today, if you go to Scott County, Kentucky, um, if you go to Great Crossing, to Stamping Ground, to Georgetown, these are small places. Everyone knows everybody. It's only now that it's getting to the point where in a place like Georgetown, maybe everyone doesn't know everybody um, in 2023. <laughs> um, but up until now, most people have known everyone for a really long time. So the branch that stays there is Imogene's branch. And Imogene and her husband... Um, have six children, four of whom make it to adulthood. And um, those four kids have, you know, marry and have many children of their own. And by 1850, before the Civil War, on the census rolls, the family is being coded on the paperwork of federal census materials as white. So they're, they're, they're right there in Scott County, in their home town. Um, the federal census records list Imogene, right, Julia's daughter, and and her husband, of course, is white, Daniel Pence. But Imogene is listed as a white woman. Her children are listed as white, and they they marry white people. Their children are listed as white. Um, there's no, they're not moving away. They're not. Um, going to Illinois or Indiana or Missouri or Ohio, they're right there in Scott County uh, where everybody knows who they are and who their, you know, mother is and who their grandmother was. And, and they're just, they're living, but they're living openly as white people. <laughs> um, and it's not just like on the records, it's, it's the paper trail is really, um, really rather marvelous or interesting or however you want to put it. But what's even more kind of stunning about it is what happens after the Civil War as we move into a period of segregation and one-drop rule and um, violence in, in so much of the country over um, interracial sex and, um, you know, miscegenation, right? And and all of these sorts of words that become part of the American lexicon. People in this family continue to live 
in Scott County, and they're, they they are they continue to be treated as white people. And people who know who they are, people, I mean, former Confederate officers <laughs> um, who know who they are, uh, are, are just, there's um, just a level of acceptance. The same people who so violently protested when these women rode in carriages and came to town barbecues um, now are their neighbors and are their fellow parishioners at churches and um, are have become their friends and just um, do business with them and and work alongside them and um, it's it's a very the transition is very very um, peculiar to in many many ways and yet it's just like this open secret that no one really kind of talks about now there are members of the family who eventually will leave Kentucky like later on in the late 19th early 20th century uh, people will move to Lexington people will move to Ohio people will move to California um, all over the country and those people will eventually stop telling their children and grandchildren about their lineage and that's something that I talk about in the book. And, and so the story will be deliberately erased and lost um, and not resurrected and dug up and found again until the late 20th century. So for generations, there will be people, um, descendants of the family of the of the Pence, Imogene and Daniel Pence line who will not know that they trace their history back to a vice president and his black wife, his enslaved black wife. But there are, you know, for decades, there are people openly living in Scott County who are descendants of Imogene and Daniel, who are just living as white people and who are accepted as white people, even though in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, there was such an uproar about this family and how they were living. It's it's so mind-boggling to even conceptualize that fact because here you have them protesting heartily at 4th of July and yet now we just all live side by side and we just I guess pretend that never happened and you know now you're accepted I guess on a level um so it's very very interesting you know and I wanted to ask you you know do you still think there is, you know, uncomfortability in discussing, you know, sexual relationships between white men and enslaved black women. Um, do you still think there is an uncomfortability in discussing that? I, I really do. I mean, I think that as far as we've come into the 21st century, I think that discussing interracial sex, discussing slavery, um, I think these things still make a lot of people uncomfortable. Like, not everybody, obviously, but I think it still makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I think that, I think this is part, I mean, it's not the only reason, but I think these are the kinds of stories that are driving certain politicians and certain states to try to rewrite history curriculum. I think that this is these are the kinds of stories that are leading to book bannings. I think that there are people who don't want to acknowledge that their ancestors owned 
enslaved and, and enslaved people. Um, I also think, you know, but it, it, it's, it's on both sides, right? There are, there's trauma on both sides. So there are white folks who don't want to acknowledge that their ancestors were enslavers um, and were sexually abusing people and assaulting people. On um, and then there are black folks who, you know, don't are 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 like, well, we that's for them. It's about accepting the trauma, like the trauma of the abuse, right? That they they also have to deal with like the heavy trauma of tracing their lineage back to folks who were, you know, enslaved and traumatized and um, victims of sexual violence. Um, and so you have on both sides, you have, it's difficult, right? You white folks who are like, we don't want to acknowledge that we have, <laughs> you know, we have um, ancestors, even if it is 200 years ago, who were enslavers and rapists. And black folks who were like, well, we don't want to acknowledge that we have ancestors who were enslavers and rapists and who also raped our uh, the other side of our ancestors, right? Um, it's trauma all the way around. So, I mean, but the thing is, is that by not acknowledging the full truth of the history, by not acknowledging all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the boring, right, of our history, um, by not acknowledging Julia's life, by not acknowledging Imogene and Adeline's life, by not acknowledging Richard's life, um, and all the other Julias out there, because there's so many more Julias out there that we haven't found, right, re like recovered and, and written about and talked about, we're walking around with these gaping holes, not just in our history books, but in our families, in our in our actual families, because there are there are families like the ones like the folks that I interviewed who are walking around not knowing their own family histories, not understanding the truth of who they are and where they came from. And that's a really painful thing. And we can't possibly move forward as families, as, you know, as people or as a nation, if we're not willing to face our past. Like putting our heads in the sand is what has brought us to this horrible point that we're at right now of, of burning books, of bannings, of censorship, of of all of these things, I mean, the only way out is through. If we want to get to the other side and have some semblance of peace, of true peace, of um, which is which is which means we must have full full confrontation and justice. the The only way that's going to happen is if we acknowledge and and make peace with our past. We cannot continue to ignore it. We walk around with gaping wounds when we continue to do that. I have people that I've interviewed for this book who didn't know the full truth of their family histories until they were in their 60s. And by that point, the parents and grandparents had passed away and they felt they were so angry because they had been lied to their whole lives because their grandparents and parents knew the truth, but deliberately hid it from them because they were 
probably, you know, ashamed for whatever reason, whether it was the shame of blackness or the shame of slavery, the shame of, of, you know, a sexual assault. And, and they, but they were so angry. I remember one, one woman said to me, you know, I just, I wrote a letter and I went to my parents' gravestones and I just, and I just read it because I was just so angry, you know, and I just yelled because how dare they lie to us and not tell us the truth about who we really are. Everyone deserves to know that. I agree. I think some of the things that, you know, you have to sometimes confront what makes you uncomfortable. Um, And as you say, the only way to actually resolve it is to go through it. Uh, And so I think that's something that's really, really important that, you know, listeners and everyone can take heart with. So what do you think is the legacy of Julia Chen? I think this story teaches us so much. And I mean, much of which I just finished saying, which is that, you know, erasure is never the the right path forward, right? That that we really have to confront our past in order to move forward. And I think that that's what this one family story has really started to to teach them. And it's been really intriguing to see what's happening in George, you know, Georgetown and Scott County as black and white descendants of the family are holding reunions and holding um, historical events and beginning to talk to one another about their history. Their, their combined, collective, painful history. And so I think that, that that's such an incredible learning experience. And I, you know, I had the privilege of attending one such event as a, as a speaker um, just back a month ago um, over Labor Day weekend. And so I think that that, that to me is, is just such a, it's the beginning stages, but it's what we need to see more of. But I, I also think that there, like I said, there are so many more Julias out there. We, there are, there are enslaved women whose stories have never, who have not yet been told. And I was fortunate to tell this story, right? Be, you know, because there was newspaper coverage, because there were church records, it gave me a way in and in some in some ways, people are perhaps more interested in this story because, you know, Julia was the the partner of a vice president. But my, I guess what I would say is is that I'm really hoping that what people will understand is that we should be as invested in these women's stories, regardless of whether or not their partner is a vice president vice president. <laughs> or a president or a politician of it. I mean, it's it's not about the power and the wealth and or or the privilege of of the man in this story, right? It's the fact that these relationships were happening all across the country at all different levels. What do they teach us about about you know power, about privilege, about whiteness, about blackness? about constructions of race, constructions of gender? What do they teach us about Black women 
who are fierce mothers about how black women will do the best they can with absolutely, you know, with what they've got, who will, you know, make a way out of no way in order to ensure a better life for their children. This story tells us all of that. Julia Chin had very few choices in life. She didn't have the ability to say no. She did the best she could with what she had. She had a limited number of options in her toolkit, but she looked at, you know, sort of everything around her and she said, how do I give my unborn children, my future descendants, a better life than the one I have? How do I give them a real education? How do I give them land? How do I give them manumission, real freedom? How do I give them everything I don't have and may never acquire for myself? This is the story of a mother, of a Black woman who would do and did do absolutely anything and everything that she could to make a pathway out for those who were coming behind her. And she did that. And that is what that is one of the biggest to me takeaways from this book. And that's what that's what I mean, there are so many. I think this book teaches us so many things about black women and about enslavement and about things like choice and coercion and compliance, because just because someone complies doesn't mean the same, you know, doesn't saying compliance isn't the same thing as consent. Julia Chin complied, but that doesn't mean that she consented. And there was still, she was still complying in the presence of force. Even if Richard Johnson didn't hold a whip over her or a gun to her head, he used psychological coercion and other forms of coercion to make her do what he wanted her to do. But she said, she said, I'm going to do the best I can with what I've got to make a way out for my kids. And she did. Emily Owens has just published this amazing book called Consent in the Presence of Force. And I, that book just came out earlier this year. But I think about that all the time when I think about Julia Chin, right? She, the superstructures of slavery were a constant presence of force. So she complied within that presence of force. And that's what Black women did throughout slavery. And they did it why? Very rarely did it benefit them, but they did it to benefit their children and their descendants who came after them. That's the story. And I want to say, Professor Myers, it's an amazing story that you have written um, for readers to gain a sense of who Julia Chen and her daughters, who they were. So Professor Myers, thank you so much for joining me to discuss Julia Chen and her life. It has been a true pleasure having you with me um, to discuss your new book. Thank you again, Katrina, for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's, it's really been my pleasure to to discuss Julia Chin with you. Thank you. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of the Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chin. It will be on sale October 10th. So I urge you and implore you to pick up a copy. It is for academics. It's for non-academics. You can go out and you can get a sense. It's an amazing book 
Professor Myers has painstakingly recreated Julia Chen's remarkable life and rescued a woman from obscurity. I assure you, you will not regret reading this book. I can say from my own experience, I picked it up and I had to force myself to put it down because I wanted to know what happened next. So it was at 4 a.m. and I was still reading. So please, I urge you, go out and pick up a copy. As I say, it will be on sale at most sellers on October 10th.